The title of the message is Jurassic Park and Escape from Self-Destructive Tendencies. <laughs> Self-Destructive Tendencies. And we are in a Bible passage, uh, Bible uh, story in Judges. And I'm going to do the best that I can to kind of talk you through Judges 14, 15, and 16. We're going to read from Judges 16 in a few moments. So go there, Judges chapter 16, and we're going to get talking about this movie. Jurassic Park is one of my favorites. I, I remember the first one just blew me away. Uh, and I have seen every single Jurassic Park they have made. Anybody with me on that? Have you seen all five? Yeah. I love watching dinosaurs eat people. Amen? <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> but it is such an, it's such an alluring story. And if you haven't seen any of the Jurassic Parks, there was somebody here yesterday that did not see a single one. And I said, and you call yourself an American? And they're leaving the church. But nonetheless, um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so they hadn't seen. So I said, don't worry about it. I will sum up every Jurassic Park movie for you. Because there's a cycle to the story. And it just repeats. So the first one, then the sequel repeats, repeats, repeats. And here's the Jurassic Park cycle. We've got a graphic to illustrate it for you. Here's the Jurassic Park cycle. Rich guy makes dinosaurs. Man cages dinosaurs. Dinosaurs escape. Dinosaurs eat the B-list actors. A-list actors survive to make a sequel. Rich guy makes or finds dinosaurs. That's the Jurassic cycle. So even if you haven't seen the movie, that's the story. And every movie after the first one is exactly the same thing. Dinosaurs escape, eat the B-list actors, and we move on. But I, I love this story because this story actually is challenging to the human condition. And the challenge, of the, uh, the challenge that the story and the movie presents is actually better felt in the book the movies are based on. It was a Jurassic Park book first, written by Michael Christian, who just died recently. And it was really a critique of scientific advancement. In the 1990s, we were starting to learn about the human genome and DNA and how to clone things. And Michael Christian writes this book to question whether or not we should let scientific advancement go to places where we don't know the potential consequences of such advancement. And here's what I, what I came away with. Here's what I come away with when I watch these movies. Uh, I call it the Jurassic truth. So if you're taking notes, write this down, okay? There are things we create that have the power to consume us. This is the Jurassic truth. Uh, previous generation wrestled with the advancement of the nuclear bomb. Now, the nuclear bomb helped to end uh, the Pacific front of the Second World War. And so it was, in some respects, some people argue this still today, that it was a necessary evil to stop a greater evil. But now today, and millions, billions of dollars, really, later, and many other wars later, we have been sniffing out for all the you know, totalitarian regimes to make sure that they don't have nuclear bombs because these are scary 
things, but they are the advancement of scientific discovery, human ingenuity, and it just betrays the reality that human beings have the potential to create things that could ultimately consume us. You have this potential. I have this potential. And here's the potential. I call it the potential of self-destruction. Self-destruction. There is something inside of us, every single one of us, that makes us do things and choose things that ultimately could hurt us. And for some of you, it was introduction to drugs when you were young and it has cost you tens of thousands of dollars, relationships all over the place, and years and years of wasted living. You chose it, but then it started to choose you and like that Jurassic monster, it chased you and tried to swallow you whole. Or, it could have been pornography introduced to you at a very young age, and it seemed innocent and alluring, but then you got into it deeper, and it's still chasing you to this day, and it's gonna swallow you whole. Or it could be consumerism, things. You just like to buy things, you just like to have things, you just like to own things, and it's like, no, I just like things, but no, those things that you own, they now own you. And like the Jurassic monster, they are chasing you down and they are about to eat you whole. It is this propensity in the human condition to create things that could consume us. Pastor, I'm, you're five minutes into your message and I'm totally depressed. <laughs> Stay with me because I have a point. But even the culture, even our media people are seeing that America is not in a good place right now. This is from the USA Today newspaper, February 2018. The article headline reads like this. Americans are increasingly becoming more self-destructive in a nightmarish trend. And the article underlines the fact that drug abuse is up, alcoholism is up, suicide attempts are up, people are killing themselves and they are destroying themselves. People aren't doing it to them, we're doing it to ourselves. We have the potential, we have a propensity to create things that can consume us. Now the scripture calls this sin. The world could call it whatever it wants. The scripture calls it sin. Sin is when we choose to walk away from God's plan, follow our own plan, and end up with horrible consequences because the world acts a certain way and when we are in out of alignment with the way God wants us to work, we only end up hurting ourselves. And so the self-destruction tendency is there. It's in you, it's in me. And listen, it doesn't even have to be like one of the big three sins either, right? It doesn't have to be like drugs and sex and money. Like it could be something as simple as food. Food, this one is mine right here. I go to the gym six times a week, not so that I can look good, so that I can eat more. Yeah. I'm just gonna have this crawler and then I'll burn it off later on the treadmill, praise God. <sighs> you know what I'm saying? The other day I was at, the rest at a restaurant with my wife and we were, watch we were looking over the menu and I saw a section of the menu that I never pay attention to. The section had the heading, healthy choice options. <laughs> How many of you completely ignore that section? I see healthy choice as a synonym for no taste. And what I did in the restaurant, I just had this moment with the healthy choice option portion of the menu. And by the way, it was very small. Like the menu was this big. Healthy choice option was like this big. 
And I was just like, wow, there's food on this menu that I could order that could help me live longer. And I said, no, thank you. I am going to willfully choose the food that's going to kill me faster. And I did. And I loved it. Self-destructive tendencies. It's in all of us. It's in all of us. You know, last year I told you I became a vegan. Some of you remember this. Some of you were here. Some of you said, woo-woo, because you're vegans too. And I got news for you. I've left you. I'm back on beef, baby. Praise Jesus. <laughs> there is prime rib on the menu at the marriage supper of the lamb. Vegans, get ready. <laughs> we do these things, though. We choose things that end up consuming us. And God doesn't want you there. That's the news I got for you today. God doesn't want you consumed by your own stupid, selfish, self-destructive decisions. He's got a better plan for you. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save. Save me from what? From you. Because <laughs> you can't blame everybody for everything that's wrong in your life. You can blame some people, you're sure. You shouldn't do it, but you could. But there are some things that you do, it's just you. And they all know, we all know it's all in here. And that's the Jurassic Park movie. Should we choose the things that we could choose that might actually chew us. <laughs> Reminds me of the book of Judges. The book of Judges also has a cycle. Now, let me give you the context of the book of Judges in the Bible. In Genesis, God creates everything. Sin comes in the world. God decides to save the human race through a family. That family's head is named Abraham. Abraham's family multiplies but they get into slavery. And in the book of Exodus, God saves his chosen family from slavery through a man named Moses. In the book of Leviticus, God tells those, that family how to live. In the book of Numbers, God creates some conflict for that family to be shaped and grown up so that they can take possession of the promised land that he has for them. In the book of Deuteronomy, he gives them some new rules because they've kind of blown the old rules. And then in the book of Joshua, God uses a man named Joshua to bring them into the promised land. But then Joshua dies. And Israel kind of loses her way. And the nation that should be occupying the promised land has forsaken their calling. They've grown comfortable. And they start to enter into this cycle where they look at the nations that they should be driving out and they start adapting to. They become like them. And because they become like them, they actually disobey their father. And this leads to bad things, and they get into trouble time and time and time again. This is the book of Judges. It's very dark. It actually has a cycle, and it's a lot like the Jurassic Park cycle. And so I have a graphic for you of that. The Judges cycle is Israel is blessed. Then they rebel and forget God. Then they're handed over to their enemies. Israel remembers God and cries out to him. God sends a judge to save them. Israel is blessed once again, but they don't stay blessed. They start to follow the pagan nations again. They get into slavery again. God raises up another judge. He saves them. They're blessed, but they can't stay blessed. They go back into slavery. It's just round and round and round. And there are 12 judges in the book. And we're going to talk about the last one. Very famous one. 
His name is Samson. Now, I'm going to say that name, Samson, again, and on the count of three, I want you to tell me what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the name Samson on the count of three. You just say it out loud, right? We are. One, two, three. Okay, you haven't heard this story before. Um, now, a lot of different words. Delilah, strength, hair, like some people with no hair are like, hair! Um, <coughs> stay with me. His hair was tied to his strength. And I want to read to you the last chapter of his life. Stand with me, would you? As we go to Judges chapter 16, and here's what it says in verse 4. After this, somebody say, after this. Just note that for later on. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek named Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said, seduce him and see where his strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you each 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your strength lies and how you might be subdued. Verse 7, Samson said to, him, said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, I will become weak like any other man. And the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings, and they had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had the lords of the Philistines lying in ambush. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the, strength of, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, and... Once again, the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, up until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you were to weave the seven locks of my head in the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with a pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away from the pin, the loom, and the web. Check this out. <laughs> and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? <laughs> you have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. Verse 16, pay attention, all the men, all the men, husbands in the house, listen. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day. I'm sorry, it's just true. You ladies have a power over us. And urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And said, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. And I shall become weak like any other man. Now, can you please make me some eggs? <laughs> okay, that's not in the text. I just added that. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as, as at other times and shake myself free. 
But he did not know that the Lord had left him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, in this room right now, and watching online, there are people that are in the throes of self-destruction, and you don't want them to stay there. I know it. And I pray that their ears will be quickened to hear your voice saying, come home. I love you, my child. I pray, God, that we will see the glory that is possible in us through the work of Jesus for us and help us to see Jesus and him only. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Samson. Judges 16 is a dark moment for this guy. And when you read it, and maybe you thought this as I was reading this part of the story where Samson lies three times to Delilah about the secret of, great, of his great strength, and three times she does exactly what he tells her to do, you have to be like me. You, you, you must be like me. Screaming into the page. Why are you so stupid? Yeah? That's where I am with a cycle of self-destruction. Wake up, Samson. You don't get there overnight. You don't get to that kind of foolish behavior in a day. So we got to look at the story of Samson. We got to back up to see how he got there so that we can learn what God wants to say to us through this story. Because the point of the story is not just don't date bad girls. It's much deeper than that. Samson, the 12th judge on the list, and the last, comes through miraculous intervention of God into his mother's womb. An angel announces to his mom, who did not have any children, you will have a miracle son, he will be strong, and he'll begin to lead Israel out of slavery to the Philistines. And she gives birth to him, and he grows up. But she's told that from conception, he is to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is a special vow, is a Nazarite vow, in Numbers 6, where if somebody wanted to set their life aside for God's purposes for a certain period of time, they did three things. Number one, they didn't touch anything from the grapevine. No wine, no grape juice, nothing. Number two, they did not have any contact with a dead body. So even if their parents or sister or brother died, they couldn't go to the funeral. And number three, they couldn't cut their hair. Three things. No wine, no dead bodies, no cutting the hair. And so Samson is a different kind of Nazarite because he doesn't make the choice to become a Nazarite. God makes it for him from conception. His mother has to follow the Nazarite vow while she bears him, and when he grows up as a Nazarite, you think, finally, he's going to do some damage to the enemies of Israel, but he doesn't. Instead of leading Israel, he just follows his own passions and his own selfish desires. So in chapter 14, Samson's a grown man, and he sees a girl from the Philistines, and he falls for her. And in verse 2 of chapter 14, he says to his father, get her for me. She is right in where? 
my eyes. This is a theme for the book of Judges for the people of Israel. And he, Samson, is reflecting back to the nation their spiritual condition, doing what feels good, what looks right. His father and mother protest, isn't there a daughter of our nation that you can marry? Must you go after these uncircumcised Philistines? He says, no, 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 I want her. I want her. He won't listen to anybody. So they get him, this girl. And here's what it says in verse 5 of the same chapter. Samson goes down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the, say the next word, everybody. The vineyards of Timnah. What is a Nazarite doing in the vineyards? Not supposed to touch the grape juice and the wine, but he's right there where it's flowing. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and though he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, and he did not tell his father and his mother. A little bit later in the story, they come back from the setting up the marriage with the girl. Verse 8, look what it says. He returned to take his wife and turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. There was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey, and he scraped it out into his hands and went on. What's a Nazarite doing touching a dead body? Already, Samson has broken two of the three Nazarite vow principles, and we're only nine verses into his story. <laughs> you know what Samson's doing? He's doing what a lot of us do. He's doing what feels good. He's doing what comes naturally. Honey, a beautiful lady. I know what God has said, but yeah, it just feels right. Well, I know what I shouldn't do, but come on, I'm a man. I got needs. And he goes in and he goes after all the things that God says, don't touch. Why? Because you, Samson, you are set apart for my purposes. And he ignores that completely. And he goes after his desires. And he suffers from self-destructive tendencies. Here's what I want you to write down. Point number one, self-destructive tendencies take root when we let what we could do overshadow if we should do it. Hmm. Yeah, you can go and do it. Go ahead, go do it. You notice that God does not control you. He gives you a choice. You can choose. He's got a law. The people don't like the law of God, but the law is for our protection. The laws are for our good, but God doesn't come down and say, do it now, do it now, do it. No, we got to make a choice. And too many of us let what we could do, even though God says no, what we could do override the question we should be asking ourselves is, should I do it? Watch out for this, because America is a playground for this kind of stuff. Unlimited options and, and unlimited devices through which we can do what we feel like. Well, that's how the Jurassic Park mess starts. Because John Hammond, the rich guy who makes the dinosaurs, brings some advisors in to check out his park because he's getting complaints because one of his workers died because they were eaten. <laughs> and he's got this guy named Ian Malcolm, my favorite character in the movie, who's kind of like the conscience of the story. And he really presses in on John's decision to bring dinosaurs back to life with what are the implications? Should we do this? And this is a powerful clip. It's very early in the movie series. 
He gets married to the girl. He goes to his wedding. He's got 30 people from the Philistine nation surrounding him. They're his chums now. The people he's supposed to deliver Israel from, he's making friends with. And they start talking, and he throws them out a riddle, and he says, if you solve the riddle, I'll give you 30 sets of clothing, and if not, I get 30 sets of clothing. And they press his wife, because they know his weakness. Get him to tell us the riddle. You, you get him to tell you the riddle, and when we want this, we want this. And, and, and if you don't, we're going to kill you. So she presses him. She's the first girl in his life that nags him to death. He gives up the riddle. She gives it to her people. And they come back with the answer, and he's ticked because he knows how they got the answer. So he goes out into some random town, kills 30 guys, takes the clothes, and gives them to the Philistines. And then a little later in the story, he's a little bit mad, but he eventually cools off, and he comes back to get his wife, this Philistine girl. He meets the father-in-law at the door of the house, and he says, I thought you hated her because you left so far, so, for so long, so I gave her to somebody else. Why don't you take her daughter, and why don't, why don't you take her sister? And Samson is more mad. And he goes out, and he ties the tails of foxes together, puts a torch between them, and sends them off into the Philistine hayfields, and they burn all the fields up. And then the Philistines retaliate to Samson, and they burn alive his father-in-law and his wife. And then he retaliates against them, and it's just back and forth, back and forth. Verse 8, chapter 15, it says this, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Like that's the Bible's way of saying he opened a can. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Samson is following impulses. Impulses. This is what gets us in trouble more often than not. It's just in the moment, just in the moment. And don't you know that the enemy is studying you? He's watching you. He knows where you lose impulse control. And he sets you up for this stuff. He baits you in, just like they baited Samson. They knew exactly how to get him off his game. Please understand this. I wish young people would write this down. The devil has been writing notes about your life since you were born. He knows what somebody said about you, and he's ready to use it against you in your future. He knows what appetizes you in your childhood, and he's going to leverage it for enslavement in your adulthood. Don't be ignorant of the enemy's schemes to tie you up in slavery for the rest of your life, friend. This is where Samson is. And eventually, his, his struggle with the Philistines comes back and starts to hurt his nation. Now remember, he was supposed to call, lead them out of the, the Philistine enslavement. But look what happens in verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? Like they're shocked that their enemies are attacking them. Why? Because they got comfortable next to them. And it says this, we've come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. And then look at verse 11. This is key. Then 3,000 men of Judah said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Why have you caused this trouble? Hold on a second. Those are the people that God called you to drive out of this land. And now you're upset? 
that Samson is causing them to get angry with you? You know what happens? You know what happens? Here's what happens to us. Number two, self-destructive tendencies can become comfortable normalities. Before we know it, we're just, this is just me. This is what I do. We're just, you know, I'm good. I've gotten away with this as long, you know. Or, you know, this is what my family does, and this is how I was raised. Or, or you know, my friends are all doing this too. Young people, listen to me. I wish you would listen to me here because there are things that your friends are doing that you just go along with because you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be odd. Can I tell you in Jesus' name, be odd. Don't be normal. You're not called to be normal. You're not called to fit in. You're called to stand out in Jesus' mighty name and to know that you've got a calling on your life that is way more significant than normal people's lives and you should be proud that you are a follower of Jesus. Let the world say what they want. Let them say it. So what? Normal people never change the world. It's the people who stand out and stand for something that others look at and say, what is it? Don't be normal, adults. This isn't just for young people, it's for you adults too. Don't be normal around the water cooler when everybody's gossiping about the girl in the office. Don't be normal, don't fit in, don't join in. Walk away, stand for something. Be different, you're a child of the living God. Don't be normal with your money. Christian, don't be normal with your money. Some of you are just doing the whole money chase, the money chase, and you just, you buy everything, you, want, you get anything you want, and you never give any money to the kingdom, you never give any money to the purposes of God. You're not normal. I give the 10% straight to God first because that tells my wallet, hey wallet, you're not normal. You are supernaturally charged for the purposes of God. It's good to be not normal. There's another word for it in the Bible, it's called holy. Set apart, set apart. And so Samson is starting to cause agitation for the people and here's what the people do. They're comfortable with the Philistines and it says in verse 12, and they said to him, we have come to bind you that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to him, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him. Now think for a second about what's happening here. The man God sends to save Israel, Israel takes, binds up, and hands to their enemies. That's gonna happen later in the Bible story, but we'll get there. They hand him over and the Bible says that the ropes on him burn away like flax. And he takes the jawbone of an ass and he kills a thousand Philistines. You know what I thought about when I heard about that thousand Philistine number? There were 3,000 men of Judah. They, they outnumbered the Philistines three times. And rather than fight, they gave in. When you're in that comfortable place, when you're in that comfortable place, you can't even imagine victory over that sin. You can't even imagine victory over that condition. You can't even imagine, but I'm gonna tell you something. You can do it through the power of Jesus that is in you. 
You have the power in the Holy Spirit, Christian, to overcome, to conquer, to change, to transform. This idea that you can't change who you are is true, but it's not just you. You got the Holy Spirit in you to empower you to become what God wants you to be. You have to see it that way. You have to see it that way because this is what God does in his people's lives. So he kills a thousand Philistines, but he's still just fighting his own personal battles. Judges 16 comes up, and here's what it says in verse 1. And he went to Gaza, and he saw there a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait until the morning, then we will kill him. Okay. Everything in this passage right here is begging us to see that Samson is taking bigger risks and playing more of the fool. Because rather than going after a wife in the Philistine country, he goes after a prostitute. Rather than taking her out into his own country, he stays the night in her country. And rather than hang out with the Philistines as friends, they surround the house. It's getting scarier and darker for Samson's life. But it leads to something. It's called arrogance. I'm okay. I can get away with this. You know, this is the story in Jurassic World now. Fast forward to the fourth installment of the series. And they think... They've got the dinosaurs under control because they didn't see the previous three movies. <laughs> and they find out that kids are getting bored with the regular old dinosaurs. We need thrilling dinosaurs, bigger dinosaurs, scarier dinosaurs. And that's the premise of Jurassic World. Samson wants to be thrilled, so he goes and takes bigger risks with the Philistine people. They surround the house, and here's what happens in the very next verse. But Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took the doors of the gate and the, of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that was in front of Hebron. A couple of facts about this. Those gates were probably about 10,000 pounds, okay? And he travels 40 miles uphill with them on his shoulders. This is, a, this is an astounding victory. You could say that this is Samson's greatest feat of strength. And in the very next verse, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek named Delilah. You know when Satan is waiting around the corner in your life? On the heels of the greatest victory in your life. I'm not tempted when I'm down. I'm not pulled away from God when life is crushing me. No, I'm turning to God then. You know when I'm turned away from God? When I think I've really done it. When I feel like I have won. Then it's like, whoa, watch out. I wish I had a voice that would say, hey, this is not a good place to be. Because it's not. When you feel like you've got it and everything's under control, watch out. There's your Delilah moment. Number three, self-destructive tendencies are often masked by overconfidence based on past victories. Oh, I, I got this. Okay. I've been here before. I know what I'm doing. It's just a little bit of drugs. It's just a little bit of sex. It's just a little bit of, you know, I just need to get this job, and then I need to get money, and I need to get, have this much money in my 401k, and then I finally, maybe then finally, after I get all that, I will finally serve the Lord. Wait. Watch out. 
overconfidence. Anybody ever see the devil's playground? I'm sorry, the, uh, the devil's advocate? The devil's advocate movie? The theme of that movie is Al Pacino is, is Satan who's tempting Keanu Reeves to be a high-powered lawyer in New York City. And the phrase that he keeps repeating through the movie is, vanity is definitely my favorite sin. Because that's when we're most susceptible to his devices. So Delilah comes into Samson's life and says, please tell me, verse 6, the secret of your great strength. And he tells her three times and lies and then she says, how can you say, we, we read this, how can you say I love you? Verse 16, she presses him day after day, his soul is vexed. Verse 17, he tells her all his heart. Verse 18, she calls the Philistines and says, he's told me all his heart, come up again. And he wakes up and he thinks, I'll go out as before and I will kill these Philistines, but the Lord left him. And verse 21, when Delilah saw, I'm sorry, and the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And it says this, and they bound him with bronze shackles, and they brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. And in the words of the old southern preacher, here's how most Samson messages end. Sin blinds you, and then it binds you, and then it grinds you. Well, I'm depressed. And if that's where the story ends, we should be depressed, but it's not. Because here's, here's number four. Self-destructive tendencies bring us to a place of brokenness where God is ready to meet us. And this is what Samson tells us. Because as he's grinding in that prison, the Philistines decide, let's have some fun with Samson. And they bring him out. And they have him like a clown entertaining them. The Bible says that the hair of his head starts to grow again. And he's out there as a showpiece for the Philistines. And he says to the boy next to him, and he says, listen, put my hands on the pillars because he sees that the people are all standing on this stadium or sitting on the stadium, about 3,000 Philistines standing, and he's at the foundation pillars. And here's what happens. He calls out to the Lord and said, verse 28, oh, Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me once more that I might be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned with his weight against them. Look at this. His right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all the strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. When he hit rock bottom, he cried out to God, and listen, God heard. And the same is true for you. The same is true for you. This is the hope of the story that you might have to hit rock bottom. And when you do, if you're not there yet, make sure you remember me telling you this. Yes, you can cry out to God. Yes, he will hear you. And yes, he has the power to save you. Sin can never take you where God's arm cannot reach you. Now look what the Bible says though. He has that boy put his right arm on one pillar and his left arm on another pillar. And Samson died like this. Does that look familiar? Because Samson's story really isn't about Samson. It's about Jesus. Thousands of years later, another son of promise announced by an angelic visit to his mom who would be bound up by his own people 
and handed off to their enemies would then be nailed to a cross. Not just so that Israel could be saved, but so that any person from any nation could be saved through God's son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand? So number five, self-destructive tendencies are broken. Listen, they're broken only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're broken at the cross. And I wanna tell every person who feels like they can't change, you can't on your own strength, but that's why Jesus came. What you have to understand about the cross is that his death was your death. And when you come to Jesus, God appropriates Christ's death on that cross into your old life and all those old struggles and those old struggles and that old habit dies with Jesus. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans chapter 6. Such a powerful phrase. I hope you get it. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? No. We died to sin. We can't live there anymore. And Christian, you know this. You know this if you're a Christian because you taste those old habits and it'll taste nasty. If you don't taste nasty when you taste your old habits, check your heart. You might not be in Christ. You died to it. That old life is broken. And look what it says. Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him into ba by baptism into death in order that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. <laughs> I don't have to follow my passions anymore. I don't have to do what feels good. And I'm not a slave to my body anymore. Why? Because Jesus' death set me free from the power of sin and the power of shame and the power of guilt and the power of fear. I'm a child of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to do the will of God to the glory of God. That's what Christianity is, friend. It's not just being better and going to church and trying to be nice. Please. That's not what the cross is. The cross is the death knell of Satan's power over your life so that you can be free indeed. Amen.